Hello and welcome to Since the World's Been Turning. This podcast series is a journey through history, one guided by the lyrics of Billy Joel's song, We Didn't Start the Fire. In this episode, we're looking at debatably the most notorious product failure in American history. A flop that puts Crystal Pepsi and Google Glass to shame, the Ford Edsel has become synonymous with failure. A new line of cars designed by Ford to try and compete in the upper-middle budget range, the Edsel suffered from poor planning, poor marketing, and even poorer design. Only collected nowadays by car collectors as a joke, or a historical artefact, the story of the Edsel begs the following questions. How does a company as big as Ford mess up this badly? Who was responsible? And what impact has the Edsel left on the American motor industry today? From the 1960s through to the 1980s, there is perhaps no punchline as omnipresent or overused as the Edsel. Here's an assortment of references to the Edsel in film and television, ranging from Francis Ford Coppola's Peggy Sue Got Married to The Munsters. What airline did he fly? Edsel. Have you ever put a curse on the whole automobile? Only once. I assume you've heard of the Edsel. It's the Edsel. It won't start. (laughs) You bought an Edsel. (laughs) The company that made this thing has been out of business for five years. It'll take us days to have another cartridge made. As usual, Charlie bought us the Edsel at computers. The Edsel's long road to punchline starts in America just after the Second World War. The motor industry is thriving. Throughout the war, Ford spent its time producing tanks and planes for the US Army, and with the return to peacetime came a new era of opulence in America and unprecedented demand for motor vehicles. As the United States is rebuilt and repaved in the image of the motor vehicle, Ford, along with General Motors, wastes no time reaping the rewards. Gas is cheap, and consumers are happy to buy bigger and bigger, more gas-intensive cars than ever. Stepping outside and glancing at the first real motorways would reveal a sea of chrome, an American-made sea of chrome at that. Inside Ford itself, the hierarchy of power is changing. Here to discuss the inner workings of the company is our guest, author, speaker and unconsultant Bryce Hoffman. Well, it was a very interesting time in the American automobile industry. The there was the market for cars after World War II was massive because people hadn't bought new cars during the war because automobile production had shifted to military production. The economy was booming, so people had money to buy cars. And this was the time when Americans were buying bigger and bigger cars with more and more chrome on them and tail fins and, you know, bigger was better. No one cared about the price of gas because it was only selling for, you know, a few pennies a gallon in the United States. The the U.S. government had just 
you know, opened up the federal highway system so you could drive on on huge wide highways from coast to coast. So it was really the golden age of the American automobile industry. Ford at the time was in an interesting position. It was really locked in a fight with General Motors for control of the U.S. automobile market. And in fact, that's one of the big reasons why the Edsel came about, because Ford looked at General Motors, which had several more brands than Ford did. At the time, Ford had Ford, which was the basic, you know, everyman brand. They had Mercury, which was the mid-market brand for the, you know, up-and-coming sorts. And then they had Lincoln, which theoretically was their luxury brand. But Ford realized at this time that Lincolns were not competing against General Motors' Cadillac brand, which was their luxury brand. And it was doing a lot better than Lincoln. So they decided that they were going to take Lincoln up market. And they needed something to fill in the gap that that was going to create between Mercury and Lincoln, which led them to create the Edsel. At the time, Ford was famously under the leadership at the top of the house of Henry Ford II, or as he was called in Detroit affectionately, Hank the Deuce. He was uh, Henry Ford's grandson, and he had actually, this is a fascinating story, he had actually taken over the company at the behest of the U.S. government during World War II. He was an officer on a U.S. naval warship in the Pacific, and he received orders from the War Department to report back to his hometown of Dearborn, Michigan, and take over his family's company. Why? Because, well, frankly, Henry Ford's loyalties were a bit in doubt uh, in Washington. He had been sympathetic to to uh uh, Germany in the in the lead up to the war, he was also a, a, a very famous pacifist, which is an interesting idea considering that he was also one of the the most successful military manufacturers in history. But also, he was getting older, and uh, the the administration of President Roosevelt had become concerned about whether the old man could uh, be relied on to keep the factories turning out tanks and planes, and so. The decision was made that, that he couldn't, and so he was pressured by the U.S. government to bring in his grandson, because his son had passed away uh, tragically at an early age. His son Edsel, which is where the name of the Edsel is going to come from, had passed away at an early age. And so Hank the Deuce was brought in, and he took over the company. He was young. He wasn't very experienced, but he was very smart. And so he quickly surrounded himself with some really experienced auto industry executives who helped him turn Ford Motor Company to kind of a model, not necessarily a good model, but a model for post-war management in large corporations. And so at the time, the key players included Frank McNamara and uh, um, Ernest Robert Breach. And uh, the other notable figure in this whole saga that was going to play out was Robert McNamara. Robert McNamara was famously the one of the whiz kids who was brought into Ford 
after World War II. Hank the Deuce is a colourful character, to say the least. Loved by his staff, both at the higher levels of the board and down on the factory floor, Hank's personality precedes him. In one notorious incident, Hank ends up in a car crash and is caught in the car with a woman who is not his wife and may actually be a prostitute. When asked about the incident, Hank quips back, Never complain, never explain. It is perhaps unsurprising then that despite the love of his company, Hank will go through three marriages in his life. Hank's great business strength is his self-awareness. Having inherited the company young, Hank knows he doesn't have all the answers, so he makes sure to surround himself with those who do. He hires with a keen eye, bringing on both old talent from within the industry and new university-trained radicals with bold ideas. And yet this team, supposedly made up of the best of the best, are the ones who come up with the Edsel. Bryce Hoffman explains how. Boy, the decision-making process that led to the Edsel is probably the poster child for bad business decision-making in the 20th century. In fact, the, the name Edsel has become synonymous with, with bad business decisions, particularly when it comes to retail products like automobiles. The issue that was facing Ford, as I mentioned earlier, was that they had recognized, they had correctly diagnosed a problem, which is that they had a gap in their product lineup. General Motors was selling a whole bunch of different cars. And they had everything from the Chevrolet all the way up to the Cadillac. And they had more brands. They had Oldsmobile. They had Pontiac. They had all these other kind of mid-market brands between the two. And Ford just had one. They had Mercury. And so they wanted to take the Cadillac up market. And so they wanted something to fill the gap that existed that would be created when they elevated Cadillac, they wanted to fill it with a new brand, not just a new car, but an entirely new brand. And so they correctly diagnosed the problem, but they went about solving it in all the wrong ways. And you know, one of the mantras that I have in my work is that bad leaders react, good leaders plan, and great leaders think. In this case, Ford was doing nothing but reacting. They recognized that they were losing market share to General Motors. They recognized that to, to, to get it back, they were going to have to do something better with, with Lincoln so it could compete more directly with Cadillac. And then they decided we have to fill this void. But the process of filling that void is where they fell down. They made a lot of assumptions about what a mid-market car that would be above a Mercury and below a Lincoln would look like. And they made a lot of untested assumptions about what customers in that demographic wanted. And they didn't spend a great deal of time thinking about how they were going to execute this. So their idea was to, you know, basically wing it. So, you know, come up with a car that was marginally better than a Mercury, but not as nice as they were going to make Lincoln. And, and so when you start approaching a design problem like that, you're not 
you're not addressing a consumer need. You're not tapping into to some zeitgeist of the era. You're simply it, it, it's a it's a reductive exercise. You're taking things away from a Lincoln and adding things to a Mercury is how they approached it. And there was a lot of statistical analysis used in coming up with the design. You know, basically like what do people like? Oh, they like a big grill. Okay, then it should have a big grill. Do they like a grill this big? Who cares? Who knows? We're not going to test it. You know, we're just going to. And, and so this this car was famously a car that was assembled by disparate teams with disparate missions, with disparate understandings, and based on a lot of unchallenged, untested assumptions. And the result was the Edsel, the most infamous car in American history, or at least a contender for the title against the uh, Ford Pinto, which would uh, famously become the most explosive car ever sold in America in the uh, 1970s. But that's a different story. Edsel launches as a seven-product line. Four of these are sedans, consisting of the lower-end Edsel Ranger and Edsel Pacer, and the higher-end Edsel Corsair and Edsel Citation. The remaining three models are station wagons, the two-door Edsel Roundup, and the four-door Edsel Bermuda and Edsel Villager. With taglines like, they'll know you've arrived when you pull up in an Edsel, and the Edsel, never before a car like it, Ford almost appears to be inviting mockery. Taking a cue from Disney, the Edsel is also promoted on its own TV special, the aptly titled Edsel Show, hosted by future master of the Christmas special, Bing Crosby. Consisting mostly of jazz standards, the special itself is immensely successful and ultimately secures Bing Crosby's contract with CBS. However, even the team behind it can see the writing on the wall. One of the singers, Rosemary Clooney, later writes in her autobiography, quote, the only Edsel I ever saw was the one they gave me to drive while I was rehearsing. I came out of the CBS building, up those little steps to the street, where my purple Edsel was waiting, like the Normandy in dry dock. Mr Ford was right behind me, heading for his Edsel. I opened the door of my car, and the handle came off. I turned to him, holding it out to him, about your car, end quotes. Bryce Hoffman talks here about the consumer landscape at the time and just how poorly the Edsel was calibrated for it. So that was the problem. So while Ford's intention was to create this car that neatly filled this gap between Mercury and Lincoln, the car that they actually produced, the brand that they actually created, the Edsel brand, pretty much competed head-to-head -head with Mercury. If you look at the price points of the different Edsels, they ranged from the Edsel Ranger at $2,484 to the top-of-the-line Edsel Citation at $3,766. 
Well, the bottom of the line mercury was $2,547 and the top of the line mercury was $4,405. So instead of creating this brand that was going to sit on top of mercury and below Lincoln, they created a brand that went head to head against their own brand, mercury. And the reason that happened is because as they started to execute this ill-conceived plan, production cost increased, different things changed, features had to be removed. If you take this feature away, then you have to cut the cost. And the bottom line is that is, is they suffered from something that uh, happens a lot when you don't have laser-focused management and alignment in business, which is the, the end product didn't match the target even remotely. So it was marketed as this mid-market car for people who wanted something nicer than a Ford. But here's the problem. Not only had their product changed in the course of execution, the market had changed. The Edsel was launched in the middle of a recession. And that recession was hitting buyers in this mid-market price point particularly hard. As a result of that, they were looking not for bigger chrome-clad cars like the Edsel, but for smaller, more fuel-efficient cars. And the Edsel, even for the gas-guzzling 1950s, was a gas hog by comparison. It was one of the worst mileage cars made at the time. And it came out at the same time that the first real foreign competition arrived in the United States in the form of the Volkswagen Beetle which was cheap, good quality, and most important of all, didn't cost a lot of money to fill up at the pump. And so at a time when people were first in, for the first time in America starting to, to look at smaller, less chrome-clad cars that were a little sippier, here comes this big behemoth that was huge, got horrible mileage, and on top of everything, had really bad quality. Ford puts $400 million into the launch of the Edsel, which translates to almost $4 billion in today's currency. The stakes of the launch are sky-high. If it fails, not only will they be ceding even more market share to General Motors, but they'll be doing borderline irreparable damage to the company's assets. It couldn't be happening at a worse moment. For the first time, the American motor industry finds itself having to compete with cars produced elsewhere in the world. They need to be ahead of the game, not behind it, as the larger foothold they give to the new imports, the harder it will be to ever return to market dominance. The Edsel is designed to look like the car of the future. Much like the later DeLorean, its design is an attempt to resonate with people's imaginations, to capture what an exciting, bold new automobile could look like. Bryce Hoffman breaks down the design of the vehicle in detail. The design of the Edsel was, well, there's really no polite word to this. It was abysmal. It, it's widely considered to be one of the ugliest cars ever made. And again, this is a reflection of this supposedly more scientific approach to running companies. So rather than just hiring some, some skilled artist to come up with a beautiful design, 
the Edsel was much more a product of teams looking at what sort of grills do people like? How long do people like their cars? And then kind of cobbling that together into this Frankenstein monster that was really, you know, the inspiration for, if anyone remembers this from The Simpsons, the Homer was was really based on the Edsel. And that's that's it really was this car that just looked like one part of it didn't connect with the other part of it. Had this huge, huge grill, which was just it, it became its most infamous characteristic. People used to call it the horse collar grill, but a lot of people said that it resembled an Oldsmobile sucking a lemon, which was not a, a flattering image. Then there was the matter of the taillights and turn signals in the back, which were supposed to look like boomerangs. But the problem was, is they pointed in rather than out. So when you when you turned on your right turn signal, you got an arrow pointing to the left, blinking red in the back of your car, which meant made people think you were turning to the left. And so there were all sorts of just things about the car that just didn't work. And then the the fact is, is that it was kind of, you know, e- even though there were some merits to the original design, it was kind of stripped of, of a lot of whatever goodness it may have had at one point by the need to build it on existing Ford platforms and Ford factories. So there was no dedicated factory or assembly line for the Edsel. They had to make it, some of them were made on Ford assembly lines. Some were made on, uh, I don't remember, it was Lincoln or Mercury assembly lines. The, they they cobbled together parts from their part spin to, to make the numbers work. And it just became a dog's breakfast of a car. When the Edsel is discontinued in late 1959, 116,000 of them have been produced. This is ultimately less than half what Ford needs to break even, and the losses total $350 million, roughly $3.4 billion in today's money. The consequences of this failure ripple throughout history, to the point where if you go to the Ho Chi Minh Museum in Hanoi today, you'll find an exhibit of an Edsel bursting through a wall, symbolising American failure in the Vietnam War. As Bryce Hoffman points out in our interview with him, this is not in the least bit ironic due to the shared involvement of senior executive Robert McNamara, later to become US Defence Secretary. To this day, people may still refer to any colossal business failure as an Edsel. It remains shorthand for hubris and missing the target, and is often taught in business schools as a what-not-to-do scenario. Of course, the consequences were worst for the motor industry itself. Here's Bryce Hoffman answering the question, what did the American motor industry learn from the Edsel? Well, unfortunately, not enough. <laughs> um, the American motor industry uh, was was learned from the Edsel that it was important to to try to spend more time understanding customers and giving them what they really wanted, but then promptly forgot those lessons in the 1960s. And so by the 1970s, all of the American automakers, not just Ford, were producing the wrong car for the wrong time, giving people you know, cars that were gas guzzlers with poor quality and lackluster design at a time when now the Japanese, as well as the Germans, were bringing small, 
high quality, fuel efficient vehicles to the U.S. market. And this time, American consumers had a choice and they voted with their pocketbooks. And the U.S. automobile industry was in a decades long decline from from then until uh, its ultimate collapse, really, during the global financial crisis in, in 2008. Edsels are still collected today, much like other cars from the era. The internationally present Edsel Owners Club organises regular appearances for Edsel owners at car shows the world over. But even then, the culture is a little different. As opposed to the reverence and fetishisation other vehicles of the time are treated with, the Edsel is treated as an artefact and an oddity. It's approached with humour and more than a little irony. It's perhaps reassuring that even with a legacy as tainted, dismal and mocked as the Edsels, there are still people who love them for what they are. In their own way, they've perhaps usurped other much more successful vehicles in terms of iconography and their place in the historical lexicon. Bryce Hoffman leaves us with some thoughts about the legacy of the Edsel. The Edsel is a cautionary tale about what happens when businesses and business leaders fail to challenge their assumptions, fail to think problems through when they react, in fact, rather than think. And as long as companies do that, as long as they react, as long as they fail to test their assumptions, we're going to see more Edsels in the world. And there are certainly plenty of examples that we can point to, not just in legacy industries like the automobile industry, but in the tech industry and, and, and other places that speak to the dangers that happen when companies kind of shoot from the hip and uh, think they have the answers without checking to make sure that they're A, really the right answers, and B, just as importantly, answering the right question. Thanks for listening to Since the World's Been Turning. I'm Robin Harrison. Special thanks to our guest, Bryce Hoffman. Bryce is a best-selling business author, professional business speaker, and unconsultant, as well as the founder and president of Red Team Thinking. Check out Bryce's book, American Icon, Alan Mullally, and the Fight to Save Ford Motor Company, at penguinrandomhouse.com. Thanks to Will McGillivray for the introduction music and to our writer, Jack McGee. Please join us again next time as we continue to explore the people, events and places behind Billy Joel's iconic song when we explore the history of the U-2 spy plane. For more episodes and information, you can follow NZ Pods, that's P-O-D-Z, on Instagram and Facebook, or you can visit our website, www.nzpods.com. That's nzpodz.com. Giving us reviews and ratings on your podcast service helps us share this project with more listeners, so please share your thoughts. We greatly appreciate your help in keeping this project going. Thanks again for listening, and please come back next time to hear more from Since the World's Been Turning.